HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Fulton Stall Market, reopening their outdoor market in the Seaport District in May 2021. Learn more at fultonstallmarket.org. This week on Meet and 3, we dedicate our stories to elders, grandparents, and family members who came before us. Some people called on the phone. What time is your appointment? Mine's 2.45. Our friend, the dentist, he, he was 3.30. And it was like a social event. It's a small island. A lot of them I knew when I was a kid. So it was, you know, to really help them feel like they, they weren't alone. It's partly this communal nature of food. And so it can operate as a bridge, um, not just between neighbors and friends, but also between the living and the dead. Listen to Meet in 3 wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Nicole Rollet. We'll talk to Nicole about the Rhone and Chen Bleu wines. We'll taste a rosé for our weekly wine sip, and we'll probably discuss some other Chen Bleu wines. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for the Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Nicole Roulet grew up in New York City and Milan to an American mother and French-Italian dad surrounded by food and wine. After graduating Vassar, Nicole got herself deep into finance, politics, and think tanks, eventually putting that all aside to pursue her love of the land and wine. She joined her husband, Xavier, to restore an historical priory and vineyard in remote Crisset in the south of France called La Verrier and Chien Bleu. Nicole is a thought leader and hyperactive in eco-culture, the promotion of Grenache, women and wine, and the future of fine wine. Welcome to the Great Nation, Nicole. What a pleasure to be with you, Sam. Thank you so much. Now, we are talking to Nicole remotely. Where are you right now? 
I'm way up at the top of my mountain in the south of France, in the Vaucluse region. And I sit on okay. top of four Appalachians, so I just look down onto several valleys. And um, okay. I'm right there right now. Okay. Uh, people, we'll tell people where they can find more info on the uh, winery later. But if they see pictures, they'll become very jealous. All right, Nicole, I mentioned to you earlier that we could probably spend the whole show on your past and the history of the winery. Um, I feel it's important that you set everything up by discussing that, but there are a bunch of other things, you know, I want to talk to you about. So let's start by you giving us a little background on your journey in life in wine um, and how you got to uh, Chen Bleu. And then let's talk a little about the history of, you know, the, the winery, the physical building, you know, and how you guys got it together. So let's just, you know, give me a quick chronology of how you got to where you are. You don't have to get into everything. We'll do that as we go along. Well, as you said, I was uh, in New York, like you, minding my own business, uh, nothing but <laughs> ketchup and stale milk in my refrigerator, going out every night like one does in, in one's 20s there, uh, at least used to, right? Um, and mm -hmm. um, uh, having a grand old time and never imagining for a million years that I was about to have a complete pivot and end up... Uh, the other side of the world, making wine on the top of a mountain. So uh, the, the the fatidic day when I met my husband-to-be, uh, he was very interesting, very charming, and it was all going well. And then when we went out to dinner, he started telling me about this crazy project that he had just committed his whole life to that was going to take up the next 25 years at least uh, just to get it up and running. <laughs> and uh, uh, I looked at him with big round eyes thinking, wow, you're fascinating and I admire your life project, but you know, why are you talking to me about this? Why aren't you courting some young vigneron from your area and uh, maybe someone who's actually done this before? So uh, I thought, well, listen, love conquers all. I'll support you in your passions and I'll continue with my interests. And little did I know that I would become very seriously bitten by the wine bug. In fact, many people in our family think that I have the worst case of it, um, of anyone. And uh, it is a very contagious virus, since that's uh, the theme of the day these days. But I, I have to say, most people who get close to winemaking and winemakers uh, eventually get very pulled into that fascinating world. So uh, I changed everything around. He, he got me um, my first wine course, and then I went off to UC Davis, and I became really, really interested in joining that aspect of the family project. Originally, I was just going to fix up the buildings because it's actually, in terms of its history, it's a ninth century priory. It had no water, no electricity. It just had a big fig tree growing through to the sky with two meters of petrified sheep dung. You know, it was an absolute ruin, like the ones you see sometimes uh, on the side of the road. And you're like, oh, wow, isn't that beautiful? Wouldn't it be fun to... 
no, you know, I'm not going to be stupid enough to, to, to embark on that. Well, we were uh, young and, and, and perhaps uh, naive about the uh, complexity and expense of going all out on both the renovation of the vineyard and of the house all at the same time. Uh, it was a very exciting site. You know, it had Templar monks. It was something that had attracted people for, for, for so many centuries because it has a very special situation, convergence, isolation. It's, it's very, um, I don't know if you know much about the Templars, but they had a whole belief system that the heavens and the earth were held together by these energetic staples and they were kind of uh, energetic highways where celestial energy and terrestrial energy would, would cross. It was all a, a mythology in France that places that had Templars had very specific energy fields. And so uh, at first coming from New York, I didn't know anything about that and I thought it was a bunch of woo-woo. And actually it's been fascinating to discover the the reason that all those ancient peoples chose this specific site and kind of rebuild everything around the original way of thinking and doing things, which has been uh, a deep dive into the history of the region, of architecture, of viticulture, um, and uh, it's just been a, a giant voyage of discovery on so top of all the other stuff. What year did um, you and Xavier embark you know, when you when you met him, he told you about this. Then you got together, eventually got married. What year did you really, you know, start plotting and moving on on this? So for me, it was a bit like a lobster that you put in the cold water and eventually gets boiled. He committed to it about 28 years ago. Um, right. The first years for me when we married about 25 years ago was to really to come on weekends. Uh, we used to come systematically every two weekends from London. And uh, I moved to London when we married and then progressively right. got uh, sucked into wanting and needing to be here uh, much more and 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 now I wouldn't trade it for anything right so Nicole you know the way they talk about like ghosts and energy and buildings <laughs> you know because of the Templar and I mean do you sense any of that or <laughs> no we have uh, we have a a lot of uh, stories around all that, like any old property. You too. Uh, but okay. there's one tree that um, has a, a, a very unusual shape, and we put a light underneath it, and at night it looks a bit like a like a ghost, and it's very interesting. Oh it sort of has its hands up and everything. And we ask people what it reminds them of, and it's so interesting because... Some people see it as a happy Casper-type ghost, and other people right. get totally spooked out and can't sleep that night, etc. It's quite amusing. Right. But, uh, yeah, all these properties have to have ghost stories, right? Because they, would, sure. <laughs> they wouldn't be worth their so, salt if they didn't. So we're talking now, and you went back, you know, 25, 28 years. Currently, is the product, not product, property. <laughs> is the property pretty much done? Oh, f you know, thank God. I mean... And the winery. And okay, so we're at a point, you know, where it's done. How long did it take for you to get there? I'm talking construction and moving rocks and planning, all that stuff. Oh, it was hor horrendous. I mean, it took us okay. about uh, 12 years just to fix up the the priory uh, another well in parallel we spent about 12 years renovating the vineyard the vineyard was um 
very abandoned. It, it required sort of taking on each vine one by one. Uh, we hadn't done this before, so we made mistakes, of course, about uh, choosing the wrong people to work with on uh, some of the restoration part of the of the building. Right. So yeah, it was a never-ending story, and I can't tell you how happy I am today that that phase yeah, of the I project mean, is behind us. Right. Um, give us a sense of place. You know, I, I struggled with this, you know, when I decided to have you on the show where you're at. Um, tell me about Shen Blue's location. I mean, you're in the Rhone, Provence, the mountains of Jugondas. <laughs> I mean, um, you're a UNESCO biosphere uh, designation. So just sort of put a pin on a map for everyone so they know, you know, the high hill that you're on looking at. Absolutely. And, and you know, you struggle. People struggle even to come up the mountain to find us when they're only 10 right. minutes away. So uh, right. uh, it's, it's, it's a double-edged sword, of course, uh, when you're working organically and all that. You're very happy to not have neighbors and, and right. uh, things like that. But uh, for tourists, it's definitely an adventure because you access the place mainly through the road that goes between Vaison la Romaine and uh, Malocène. So if there are any people who like cycling, they'll know that Malocène is one of the, the takeoff points to cycle up the Mont Ventoux, which is a very important part of the Tour de France. And right. uh, and it's on the... Um, it, so these are the foothills of the Mont Ventoux, right? Otherwise known as the giant of Provence. You can see it from most of the region because the rest of the region is sort of a flat plain. And suddenly you're looking at the edge of the tectonic plate where the bottom of Europe has smashed into the top of Africa and put that plate on the edge. So it kind of comes up and everywhere that there's tectonic activity, there's often volcanic activity, hence the Mont Ventoux. So this whole area is uh, suddenly very hilly from a, from a low base. And as a result... Um, as it was historically tended by a lot of uh, people on the flanks of the mountain, like in other regions. And if you come up the road, little winding road for about 10 minutes, you pass a very charming village of Christe. And that still has the original church at the top and all of that. And then you go another three kilometers. Um, so what would that be? I guess um, eight uh, uh, no, it's the other way. So a mile and a half yeah. or something uh, yeah. to uh, to through the woods, and you're on a little paved road. And as soon as you think there's no way that this is the right way, because surely no one would choose to live so far from everything and everyone. And you call us, and then we say to you, just keep going a little bit further. You can make this. You <laughs> can do up. this. Don't give up. Yeah. And then suddenly right. it all opens up, and you have these rolling hills looking out on one side to the Saint-Amand, which is part of the famous Dentelle de Montmirail, those foothills of the Mont Ventoux that you see a lot in images of Gigondas, etc. And then on the other side, you'll see a valley of Vaison-la-Romaine, and it's, um, it's, it's go you've gone without noticing it on your road, from about 350 feet to 1,800 feet. So you're way, wow. you're way up around, above the clouds. It's really quite cool. Wow. Um, I mean, like I said, it's magnificent. Um, 
and when we talk about the wines, we'll talk a little about climate, soil, and all that. But I wanted to ask you something that's been pretty important to everybody. Um, you know, it's a Chen Blues, as you described, a big, gorgeous property, but generally it's a smaller winery. Um, what I want to know from you is what effect the pandemic has had on the winery in the past year. Hmm. And, you know, you're a businesswoman and a small winery. Is it going to have a long lasting effect on smaller wineries as they try to move into the future? I think so. I think that um, we, like so many of your smaller winery guests have, have told you how it's been frustrating and disappointing to see that with the pandemic, so many people who were interested in smaller properties, organic things, people working well, taking the time to really care about what they were drinking and why they were drinking those good wines, many of them just rushing off to the supermarkets and, you know, the Costco's, et cetera, and just loading up on very big brands, heavily marketed, et cetera. And for us, like for so many small wineries, such a beautiful symbiotic relationship with the restaurant trade. So there's no question that when the world suddenly came to a grinding halt, uh, we were in the category of wines that were very affected in, by the disruption in distribution. And uh, that did require major pivoting, uh, so much effort listening to clients, listening, you know, reading a lot, listening to the experts, looking at what can, could be done and should be done to, to turn that around. And we were very happy that by the end of the year, we had figured that out and we were able to get by this with the same sales as last year, but it was a terrible time and I wouldn't want to have to go do that again. And here we are probably having to do that again. So, uh, right. uh, we had to do everything that you've read, you know, and heard from setting up the e-commerce. But of course, when you're in France, it's not like in the U S uh, where you have a big market right there on your doorstep, all sorts of things like that. Right. So yeah, it's and been the US is, very challenging. The U.S. is more internet savvy than Europe, believe it or not. Absolutely, um, for wines. Now you know the 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 priory, the building is is La Verrière. It's is it fair to say it's like an eco luxury resort? I mean, you you have you know rooms there and a gorgeous pool and dining i mean that pretty much shut down for most absolutely of the year, completely i mean uh, the government just shut all the hotels and, and bed and breakfasts 100 percent uh, illegal to operate and so we lost the whole spring uh, they opened us up uh, in the middle of the season and um I guess mid-June, so we were able to salvage uh, the other part of the season. But uh, right. it's it's all happening again. They just shut us down this week again. So what now? It's strange. They've shut they've shut hotels. They've let smaller structures. We only have you know five rooms, things like that. Those can stay open, but they've prevented anyone from traveling more than 10 kilometers from their house, which means, you know, who's going to go and check into a hotel nearby? No uh, so yeah. it's, they, they make you stay or you're allowed to stay open, but you're not allowed to have 
visitors from anywhere. So, um, yeah, it's it's no fun. And, and you're going into your season, too, which you're going to lose a little. Absolutely. We've had to cancel all the reservations that, that were yeah. that were there. I'm sorry. To, things are easing up here in the States, but I'm, I'm sorry to hear about that. I'm very that. happy that they're uh, easing in the States. I'm, I'm glad that, that at least... A little. Yeah. A little, you know, be, better. Um, you know, I heard this term super Rome thrown around, <laughs> and then you sent me a bunch of articles, and I stumbled on an article, you know, before uh, I, I heard about it before the article um, for Shen Blue. And, you know, I'm a huge Rome fan, which is one of the reasons, you know, you're on the show. Uh, recently had Laurence Farad on. Oh, she's terrific. Jean, Go Jean Gonan, you know, I love those guys. Fabulous. Um, and, and I thought, you know, it would be great because you're you know, wines and project is another perspective. Um, so this term super wrong gets thrown around and I'm assuming it's like super Tuscan, you know, they created it because there was this disagreement or criticism, you know, of the AOC. Um, I, I mean, what does super own mean? You know, do you like the fact that you refer to that and then get in a little because this has been going on with a bunch of people I've been talking to. The way the wine AOCs or designations are set up just doesn't work for everyone. So they decide to work around it. Talk to me a little about that. Yeah, I think it's a really good question because for the exact definition of what a super own is, probably best <clears throat> asking the people who come up with those terms. But for me, uh, it refers to, I assume, I assume when they use it with us, there are some commonalities with Super Tuscans, for example, because we do tend to put some of our top wines uh, outside of the AOC. Uh, but then the big difference is the Super Tuscan typically refers to wines made with those international varieties like the Cabernet and all that, right. and Merlot. Merlot, whereas in our case, the backbone of our wines is local varieties. We have these absolutely stunning old vine Grenache and Syrah, uh, which are very well suited to our environment, and because of the altitude give a very particular... Uh, interpretation of what those grapes can do. And so we would never think to be too far removed from our roots, literally and figuratively. And so the, the, the super rune in our, in our case, I think, means more that we have, we pick and choose what aspects of appellation we feel are justified in the case of our property, right? We haven't taken on the whole notion of Appalachian for everyone everywhere, but our first experiences trying to reconcile what the Appalachian map says in an area like this and what we observed in the vineyard threw up all sorts of discrepancies that are, to our mind, quite unreconcilable. And Normally, when that happens, if you have a bunch of neighbors, you can go to the appellation and argue that the delineations need to change and here's why. But the bylaws are such for the appellations that no single vineyard can make that case uh, because those laws are there to prevent everybody and their neighbor from 
knowing right. someone and having special access and whatever it is. So um, in our case, we're actually on top of these four appellations. It's where they connect and then they go down into their respective valleys. And so uh, there's some mainly Ventoux, Côte du Rhône, Gironda, Seguré, but also some Vendepille. And so in order to have the freedom of mixing and matching the different parcelles based on our empirical observation of their qualities and their style and all of that, we decided it's better to give ourselves that freedom and make the wines we think the way they should to bring out the best of them instead of trying to make a, you know, fit a, a round peg into a square hole or whatever they say. And so... Is there any... So you have to work outside of their box to make the wines that you think are best. Is there any detriment to doing that? Not the product, but either perception or sales oh, or legal issues? Absolutely. And 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 even, you know, to, to, to tell you sort of our own behind the scenes issues, we had had so many problems just getting this whole thing off the ground, figuring out all these problems, et cetera, et cetera. And then we were embarking on the commercial part and... As often is the case, I like to think things through a lot and some of the other people wanted to sort of jump into certain things. And I was the naysayer. I was the one saying, well, are we crazy after all this? Now we're going to also try to go it right. alone and also be outside of the Appalachian. Be a renegade. Um, and, yeah. uh, and so the, there was a clear crossroads. We had a little tasting uh, in the family where we were try, you know, trying these different blends. And it was really obvious that in order to make the wines that we thought would, you know, stand out and, and hopefully one day rock the world, um, right. it was essential that we, that we keep that freedom. Now, not to be disparaging towards some people, but there's a history of just... Uh, cheating a bit on what you do around here. So if you are in that kind of situation and, you know, nobody's going to come and know exactly what wine you put into what and this and that. And it was very, very important for us to not go down that path because it's so easy to get yourself into that in a place where the rules are so rigid and don't always correspond to right. the reality. And now you see it a lot with these high altitude properties because the yields are very low up around here. They're 14 to 25 hectoliters per hectare, which is less than a ton an acre. And so that's why there was an exodus after centuries and centuries of people farming these lands, everybody moving down to the valley with the arrival of chemicals, mechanization, creation of cooperatives in the 60s, such an incentive towards quantity. And why would you break your back on low yielding properties at altitude when you can bump up your yields right. so much that in the, the 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 authorities have to start capping the yields so so a lot of people use their high altitude properties to do a kind of weighted average of the ones in the valley that would sort of exceed the the regulations and then put in you know these other ones. So there was a lot of that going on for a long time. And we felt that coming in like that, we were better off just coming in with a clean slate and doing things in the way that we thought made the best wine and then trusting the market to 
give us the feedback that we wanted or needed to know if these wines were what we were hoping they would be. So I guess in that sense, pretty, it's a little bit more of a new world mentality and maybe it comes up bit yeah, back to pretty your... Pretty ballsy too, you know? <laughs> to your super own I question, mean, you know, is it, it was yeah. very, very scary and hard. Yeah. Um, but I think it worked out as far as what you want to do and fulfilling your vision. Oh, thank you. Um, so, something that's, that you practice is important to you and is important to you um, is sustainable viticulture. Um, I'm always curious <laughs> why everyone isn't doing it or attempting to do it, you know, <laughs> so am I. and you know, one of the reasons or some of the reasons I guess is, you know, can you be socially responsible? You know, can you make great wines? You know, can you practice this stuff, whether you're certified or not? And in the bottom, you know, and to the bottom line, can you make a profit? You know, so w w are we seeing a shift towards sustainable viticulture or there's still always going to be people, you know, that are chugging out a lot of wine or don't care? What do you think? You're pushing my button here because it's, it's know, one of my I'm passion purpose. points and I'm trying to, uh, to, to be understanding as well about why it is that, that some wineries that, in my opinion, should know better are still reticent to, to go all out and, and do what I think is necessary, not just for their vineyard, not just for the consumers, but just more generally for the planet, right? I think it's a well-known right. thing now that everybody's come to the realization that if we do want to slow down climate change and all that stuff, that it's never going to happen just through the, you know, stopping the, the, the fossil fuels. We will maybe slow things down, maybe bring bring them almost to nothing but we won't be able to pull away all the carbon that's already in the atmosphere right. unless it comes from plants and the only way to turbocharge that is to convert all agriculture as fast as possible last chance <laughs> um you know otherwise it's uh, last one out turn off the lights you know and uh, right. and this is the famous moment that we we have to reckon with all this so viticulture fits into that also in france it's only it's about what 10 15 percent of arable land and um, um and and of course we're part of that but i won't take credit for the work we've done from the beginning because that was completely my husband's vision when he actually bought the property. He's a hardcore conservationist and he was always looking for a place where he didn't have to worry about neighbors with the water supply and all of that and, uh, you know, poisoning the well, as they say. And so he, right. um, he fell in love with this place because it had the forest all around it. He was 25 years ahead of, 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 of so many. He was one of the big pioneers in that area. And coming from Manhattan, I had to learn so much about that. His sister, uh, Benedict, uh, is also really knowledgeable and passionate about it. And she started off running the, the vineyard with um, a very zero-tolerance policy for all the, the commonly accepted practices back then. Every consultant, everybody you, 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 that was selling you stuff, there, there were no 
alternatives. <laughs> and, and one of the things that frustrates me in France is that that kind of very chemically-based agriculture is called euphemistically agriculture conventionnelle, you know, that that idea that it's the convention that there's there's something that that word is so uh, full of nuance because it it suggests right. that if you're not Con conventional, that you're unconventional, that you're some kind of black sheep because you actually want to protect <laughs> biodiversity <laughs> around your vineyard. You know, it's just, it's, it's clever branding, but it's so dangerous uh, because it somehow suggests that do using chemicals is not a, a long-term threat to first your environment then your consumers, and then ultimately your vineyard because you won't be able to get it to do what it needs to do, right? We've all right. seen the how... living, you know, organisms. Yeah, we're seeing everywhere what's happening to the lands that are not uh, managed in a, in a sustainable way. And uh, well, we'll, we'll talk about that a little more when we talk about the wines. Um, Nicole, we have to take a quick break. Um, we're talking to Nicole Rollet. Nicole is the proprietor of Chien Bleu and La Verrière, um, somewhere in the Rhone, south in Provence, in the southern Rhone, as Nicole described. Um, you're listening to The Great Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Fulton Stall Market, reopening their outdoor market in the Seaport District in May 2021. Fulton Stall Market is a nonprofit indoor public farmer's market. It offers locally grown and produced healthy and affordable fresh food to the Seaport and Lower Manhattan community. Fulton Stall Market is a direct sales outlet for over 100 New York region farmers and small batch independent food producers. They have been operating as a public market to serve the Seaport community since 2015. While you shop at Fulton Stall Market, you can pick up a few guides from Escape Maker's informational kiosk. Escape Maker connects urbanites with local farm, winery, craft beverage, and culinary getaways within a day's drive or train ride of New York City. Learn about day trips from New York, where you can explore the best agritourism the region has to offer. Learn more at FultonStallMarket.org and EscapeMaker.com. Okay, we're back. We're back with my guest, Nicole Roulet. Nicole is the proprietor, along with her husband, Xavier, of Chien Bleu and La Verrière, the physical facility. Um, I want to talk to you about the wines now. And, you know, I want to talk to you about everything that involves the wine. Um, the property we've been talking about is in excess of 340 acres, correct? That's right. How much of that is planted to vineyards? About 125 acres, I think, is the conversion of the 30 hectares, if I recall correctly. So you have 30 hectares of vineyards in place right now? Yeah, surrounded by wow. this uh, forest, which is part of a UNESCO biosphere. And right. um, so it's a, a very wild area full of um, 
animals. So all and... the wines that you make are estate grown. That's right. Absolutely. In fact, the furthest um, block is uh, maximum 10 minutes from the house. So it's a big advantage um, when we are harvesting the grapes in terms of not having to refrigerate things unnecessarily. It's it's very right. well well set up for being your classic sort of single estate vineyard. So how much... Because, you know, you just said you have to drive 10 minutes to get to one of the plots, which is part of the estate. Um, talk to me about, you know, diversity and the soils. Do they vary? You know, talk to me about climate. You know, you're in the south of France, but you're in the mountains. Um, you know, talk to me about, we talked about sustainability, but now let's get specific to the vineyard, you know, about your organics, biodynamic practices, um, you know, things like that. And then I want to talk to you about the cellar too. Well, you've just touched on several of what we consider the fantastic four up here because we have this amazing altitude, which, as you know, in a hot climate is very interesting because you can get that interesting juxtaposition or sometimes almost contradiction between all the the southern sun right southern rhone is famous for the number of of sunny days it has and uh, uh, we have the the same amount of sun and rain as say chateauneuf du pape so you have a certain expectation of what the grapes will be like there and gigondas is a bit of a different story we we our vines begin where Gigondas finishes, and Gigondas, as you may know, goes from uh, 250 meters to 550 meters, which I love Gigondas. I have many friends there, and I love their wines. But if you right. want to look at me straight in the eyes and tell me that terroir <laughs> equals Appalachian and Appalachian equals terroir, how can you say that, that the mountain fruit and the, the valley fruit is going to be one and the same uh, when you have that kind of um, of difference on your um... well explain the effect of the altitude um on the grapes yeah which you know both you and i agree (laughs) is an advantage the other thing was you have that hot sun you were talking about but at night because of the mountains it cools down right a hundred percent you get huge temperature variations between day and night you also get an amazing um uh, uh, advantage for finesse elegance um, and white wines, for example, which are very hard to uh, to keep fresh if you're growing them in the Southern Rhone, uh, because we have the later har- ripening season and we harvest in October instead of September, there's an amazing opportunity to, to develop those elegant phenolics, which we have really put front and center uh, in the, the story and style of the wines that we have. So we try to capture the texture and the stickiness that comes from having that sunshine and getting um, an element which I think is a bit underestimated in the evolution or the, uh, stylistically of, of grapes, especially in our area, which is the importance of wind. At the top of a mountain, you have uh, so many winds. I don't know if you're aware that Provence is, is sort of, everyone is a wind expert. It's a bit like the Eskimos with, <laughs> you know, 20 different right. words for snow. Uh, we have 20, right. 21 different winds here and people sit around showing off how they've recognized that it's this wind or that wind and everyone has a, a name, every wind has a name. So uh, out here what it means is that it really dries out the berries and it leaves a very sticky juice and then these thick 
wild skins that have, apart from all the natural yeast, they also have, um, they're packed with phenolic information. So they have, to some extent, too much information. Like one of the challenges of working with these grapes at altitude is that you'll, you'll spend a lot of time having to sculpt the wines or tone some things down or take off some angular edges from the tannins and as opposed to the delicate grapes that you could get in a, in a cooler climate region where it's all about coaxing out what they have to say and, and you know, telling them not to be right. so shy and reveal what they have inside them, right? So, so um, anyone who's ever raised a couple of kids will, will know that as a parent, you have to adapt your parenting style so dramatically uh, around the personality of, of that child, whether they're shy or whether they're exuberant, et cetera. And, yeah. and up here, um, that's the number one characteristic of these, uh, of these beautiful old uh, Grenache and Syrah is that they, they, they really pack a punch. And um, you don't get the same alcohol levels, of course, as you would in the valley. In fact, all the Ventoux is very exciting that way. The average temperatures in the Ventoux region are uh, cooler than in their uh, neighboring uh, Appalachians. And so uh, as a rule of thumb, especially with the global warming doing what it's doing, those, that, those extra degrees of coolness are really uh, helping a lot because you don't have to yeah. f freshen up the wines. It's something that we'll talk about. I think when we when we taste the the rosé is the how the rosé if you're in the south of France if you think about it it's so hot Provence all of that and yet in Provence you know they're making these rosés that have to be fresh and flirtatious and it's hard to imagine doing that with uh, you know without using tartric acid for example. Right. Um, so that's that's another advantage of being at altitude. Um, tell me, soil wise. I mean, what's the? I, I don't know how varied it is, but the general composition of the soils you're dealing with is what? Yeah, a lot of places that have um, high altitude often it's because they're on the flank of a mountain. Not always, of course. Uh, so what's so fun here is that it's not just a mountain; it's actually the edge of the tectonic plate. Now there are not many places in the world where your vineyard is like sitting that. right on the side right. of it, right? So if you have right. your Jurassic, Triassic, Cretaceous all exposed right on the surface, that means that right under your thin layer of topsoil your vines are hitting that amazing uh, complexity of, of minerals that in, a, in the valley it would take, you know, be a couple of kilometers down, maybe a mile down before you start getting to some of those very, very, very ancient bedrocks. And we actually have in our vineyard those giant uh, sea snails that are the size of dinner plates. We take out all these fossils because uh, it used to be this ocean bed that was pushed up. So, right. uh, so if you are a rock jock and, and you certainly become one here, if you weren't, when you started working with this vineyard, uh, you have an absolute field day. And in fact, we work with, uh, the very well-known, wonderful elderly gentleman here, uh, Georges Truc, who is the one who drew up all the original 
national uh, geology maps for the region. He's a, a treasure trove of, of knowledge and information. And he and, and other geologists love to bring people uh, to study the, the geology here because it's such a great way to access all the stuff that would normally be beyond ground. So that's it's, super... It's, it's endless too, right? It's, it's endless. Everywhere you turn, it's... It's you know, so I fun. Mean, it's, and that, of course, I know, as you know... I saw pictures. I mean, just to walk around and turn rocks over and split them is crazy. Right. Um, I, had a, I had a question about... Um, seller practices i confirm or discuss this with me because of altitude it's tough to get indigenous yeast to inoculate the wines is that true and do you, that is what absolutely do you have to true do? that is absolutely true so, what we're saying they, with most wines is the yeast in the air occurs naturally and inoculates the wine it's tougher there so now you have to do what yeah, so what we had to do, so what you would typically do is just put a bunch of power yeasts and get your fermentations going. Um, for us, because, as you said, uh, because the lack of oxygen, the yeasts get lazy. <laughs> so you have a ton of them, but it's hard, to, um, it's hard to work with them. We have quite a few smaller, sort of medium-sized tanks instead of having a few big tanks. But what we yeah. discovered is that um, it's it's much better to work with even smaller tanks to jumpstart your fermentations. So we'll typically, we put in, after we built the whole winery and our, our medium-sized tanks were already much smaller than what's typically used to have a lot of control during blending, uh, we then had to uh, make space for for tiny tanks to just get each little batch going and then you can move that batch into the bigger tanks and then you're okay with your your fermentations are not at risk of uh of stopping which is of course for a winemaker one of the big many nightmares right. uh, uh minefields uh, along the way is that i don't know if you can answer this and uh, you know i know you do so much research and you know you have all the right consultants is that a typical way to handle that problem or that's how you figured out to do it? I mean, historically, it, is that what you do? Or? We're very lucky here because we had almost from the beginning, we were able to be connected through some good friends to whom we owe a lot, uh, to some very fantastic um, people who have given us some very fantastic advice through the years. Uh, we work with a local laboratory called the ICV, and uh, you may know Philippe Camby, the famous enologist sure. from the Rhone. Yep. So he was extremely um, kind and helpful in helping us get the project off the ground. And I would recommend to anyone who would ever consider a project like ours, you know, starting from scratch, having to build a winery, all of that, um, to work with someone like him. Because um, there's, if you... You need a hands-on working enologist to guide you in the actual configuration of the winery. Normally, they steer you, the architects, etc., to these consultants who build wineries for a living. But those are never the guys who actually have to make the wine year over year. And, uh, right. and people then often call in an enologist too late in the process when the actual 
concept of the winery is already somewhat set in stone. So uh, definitely top tip is to get your enologist sorted out before that all happens. Um, and then, <laughs> and then, Trial and uh, error. You figured it out, yeah. Uh, and then we had... Um, the enormous privilege of being connected through a dear friend to Zelma Long, who definitely right. had a legendary, had an enormous impact on us on every way, not just her advice, but also she's very much a, a mentor to me and to many of us. And right. uh, she's an incredible person. So, so having those people at the beginning could not have been more helpful. And then at Harvest, I had spent a fair amount of time in California because my mother had retired to Santa Barbara, and I got to oh, know uh, some of the some of the fabulous uh, winemakers out there. And very kindly, they offered to give us a hand on our first harvest. So um, Andrew Murray, who you've hopefully met, um, Doug Marjoram came uh, and gave us a lot of help and was incredibly kind and helpful in our early years when everybody was kind of skeptical or uh, downright uninterested. It was fascinating to see how people reacted to this very odd little ambitious project in the middle of nowhere and right. and and you'll never forget the people who were helpful and supportive at the beginning i completely understand the ones who who didn't necessarily have the time or the bandwidth to understand who we were and why we were doing all this but i'll always be grateful to the people who were there at the beginning yeah that's when you look back you realize how important that was let's quickly talk about the wines Let's start with the um, the whites, which are very, I don't know what the right words are, underappreciated, underrecognized, you know, from the Rhone, but they're incredible wines. You make two or three wines. You make a Viognier, uh, an Aliot, which is a blend, and you make a Rosé, which we're going to taste in a few minutes. Um, the Viognier is 100% Viognier. You blend anything into it? Uh, so it is 100% Viognier, and um, I'm so happy you're making time to talk about those wines because it is a very small production for us, but a very important one uh, symbolically and, and reputationally. I think um, they, they were amongst the first wines to come onto the market, even though the Alio is, is aged uh, considerably, and we'll come back to that, I hope, because the ageability on these wines is one of their special um, party tricks <laughs> and um, right. so yeah the Viognier as you know um, the the global capital of Viognier is in, in Condrieux in the northern Rhone and right. in the southern Rhone because it's so hot and it's such a perfumey grape it's a very divisive grape right some people love it others hate it it's a bit like the Marmite of the grape world because the aromatics can be so potent and and uh, some people will just lose themselves in those beautiful floral aromatics and other people will just be repelled by by them so so Viognier is always a bit of a controversial a grape, except I think there's a fair amount of consensus that the Viognier from Condrieux has, for the most part, the more elegant and restrained uh, interpretation of what Viognier can do. And I guess it's a perfect entry into hopefully what you'll find across all our wines, which is that being so far south and so high up, you'll get on that Viognier that texture, the stickiness, 
that you'll typically associate or expect uh, from a Southern Rhone wine. But then on the aromatics already, it doesn't punch you in the nose that way. Hopefully you'll find it has that restraint, the finesse, the elegant perfumey thing, not the, you know, getting stuck in, in the, in the right. elevator with the woman wearing too much perfume thing, which sometimes right. happens. It's kind of known for, um, on the Aliode, you don't use any Viognier. The Aliode is a, a blend of at least three grapes, right? So traditionally, our Aliode is only those three grapes. A little bit of Viognier on some years has slipped into the blend about, you know, one, two percent. But generally, it's uh, 65% Roussan, 30% Grenache, and uh, the, the last five is Marsan. So again, messing around right. with this Northern Rhone, Southern Rhone identity and your expectations from, from those regions. And hopefully that one you're noticing that its reason for being is to show you all the kind of vertical complexity of what this little vineyard sets out to do. So on that one, we're really trying to structure it in a way that your aromatics are going to come out sequentially in a very precise order. You know, want to make sure that when you first go into that wine, you're going to notice that beautiful fruit bowl of, you know, Provençal, white fruit, all that uh, peaches and and uh, citrus right. and tropicals, a lot of pineapple, lychee, whatever. Um, and then, then you start getting the spices, the flowers, and then the warmer notes from the oak, because all our wines are oaked with, with very few exceptions. Um, and then the white's not in full barrel. We do the demi-mui, which is more um, subtle, we believe, and more um, appropriate for whites. And then right. in the end, you start getting, as it ages, um, crazy aging potential on that wine. I mean, drinking the 2008s, for example, right now is just uh, completely f- exciting for me because... They're drinking well. They're drinking. Right. You get all the weird stuff. That's like on the, wh- the reds, Like the white burgundies, look. right? Like when you talk... Yeah. Like it's, you get all nice, the forest mulch. Nice to see that. It's so fun. And then the rosé I have in front of me um, is a blend of five grapes. Do you predominantly blend, you know, three, four, five grapes, take advantage? It started as a paint-by-numbers with a Grenache-Syrah blend, <laughs> like all our, our neighbors. Um, and then we we found ourselves going way down this sort of un, unbeaten path of trying to make a very complex, food-friendly, ageable rosé, which had all the bells and whistles of a well-made white or red, and uh, a lot less in common with the cheap and cheery, fun, you know, porch mm-hmm. pounders or whatever they call them. And so mm-hmm. that is what caused us to keep trying to blend in new grapes and, and add to the complexity and add to the, the nuance. And then a saving grace for us was planting Vermentino. I mean, that was... Oh, I didn't pick up on that anyway. Yeah, I love that grape. That's an important grape for us because it's not that common, certainly in our part of the Rhone, um, sure. uh, where they they call it Roll. It's an Italian coastal. It yeah. is, and it has the wonderful advantage of bringing natural acidity and freshness to a blend. So on a hot year, uh, when a lot of winemakers are going to be forced to reach for the tartric acid, uh, you can just bump up the percentage of Viognier and uh, 
of a vermentino and on a typical year it might be say five percent but on a hot year we, right. we might bump it up to 12 percent and that really gets us through uh some well, of these I hot summers the, um i have the 19 in front of me and there's no vermentino in it right the whole so the whole is vermentino that's right that's the that's the oh, french okay. name so all right all right, we don't have a lot of time, and I want to cover a lot of things. So let's bump to the reds. There's predominantly the two reds. There's Abelard and Heloise, um, which are the names are derived from the Romeo and Juliets of France. Um, let's talk about which one do you want to talk about first? I, I personally like to show Eloise ahead of Abelard. My brother-in-law and I okay. often disagree on that, but um, there's no, it's subjective. Uh, but um, yeah, for me, Eloise is, um, because it's, it's their yin and yang, right? One is a Syrah blend with some Grenache and then this little secret right. ingredient with a splash of white wine. And then the other is Grenache right. with some Syrah. Um, this one is really trying to showcase what, in our opinion, is a very northern Rhone style of Syrah. So that taut, austere, elegant, you know, very um, precise Syrah that you can get in a cooler climate as opposed to the big, juicy, round Syrah that you'll get in a hotter place. And so our Syrah being a mountain Syrah, we decided to flush it out with with some of our more fleshy Grenache, which we'll come to. And then uh, in the style of a Cotroti, copying their logic, since that's very much what they do in the Northern Rhone, is a little splash initially of Viognier, and in the last vintages since 2011, switching over to Roussan, which is not very common, but achieves the same effect of giving some beautiful floral notes, pulling you into the glass to meet this more structured, serious Syrah. And the difference between the, the using the Roussan and the Viognier is that the Roussan, for me, fleshes out the, the mouthfeel a bit and gives it that um, the roundness that I think is very appropriate for this more kind of, quote-unquote, feminine uh, wine, if right. you're not supposed to be more making elegant. all those gender stereotypes anymore. But um, that's, uh, yeah. that's how I, I see it. I use the word elegant, where the, the Abelard is a little more opulent. Absolutely. And rich. Absolutely. Right? That's that's more Grenache in the Avalon. A hundred percent. That is showing showcasing right. a very um, mountain Grenache, which is quite idiosyncratic. It's not the big, soft, velvety Grenache that you'll typically find in the valley. It's it's muscular and and it's 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 very dense. And it has a lot of intensity and personality and, and opulence. And so that wine is really more mouth-filling and trying to uh, pack a big, bigger punch, but never getting hot, never getting burning at the back because that alcohol right. is, is not going to come not through because of the altitude. So there, there's an opportunity, you know, within Chen Bleu for two styles, you know, whatever one appeals to you, you know, is an opportunity. Now, the the aging and release schedule is interesting. I mean, you don't run to the market so quickly to release wines. How does that work? Um, we soon discovered, much to our chagrin, that the best way to show what this vineyard was about was specifically um, giving ourselves the time 
to put the wine in barrel for what we thought was the right amount of, of time, somewhere between a year and 18 months. Took us a while to get the right barrel treatment, all that stuff figured out, uh, about three or four vintages at least. But getting to this kind of cruising altitude, which was economically suicidal at the time on top of everything else we had had to go through, was like, seriously? But, but setting it up to be able to age the wines so that the barrel has time to integrate. The oak is very rounded and also, in my opinion, this is my personal preference and not everyone would agree with this, but I love wines that have the structure and the, and the, the complexity that comes from the oak, but I love it when it's underneath the fruit and I, I really want that fruit right. to be up at the front and that takes uh, at least a couple of years. So bringing the wines into the market too soon is is a crime. You either have to skip or skimp on the oak treatment, and then you're making something that's kind of lovely, but doesn't isn't necessarily built to last and continue, you know, with all the advantages of wood, right? Who wants to use barrels unless they're adding something because they're really expensive. Right. They're very hard to manage. It, it becomes know. economics. That's you know, right. If you have the patience, the resources, the vision, you'll do it the way you do it. Uh, well, you know, it's, 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 it's not for the faint of heart. And I, I really, no. <laughs> you really have to know who you want to be when you grow up, because if you want to just get out there and show off some nice fruit and have a lovely little um, juicy, fun wine to drink with your friends, absolutely. I mean, and I love those, but, you know, be my guest. Yeah. But I don't think that that is what it makes any sense for the kind of complexity and structure that we have in this very unusual little vineyard. So that was the, the reason for, for making wines with this late release. Yeah, that makes sense. And... It showcases the wine. Um, Nicole, we're running out of time. Oh. I want to squeeze in our wine list. Um, no surprise to you, because we don't have a lot of time. All I really want from you is answers. You don't have to um, expand on them, and I'll help you stay focused, um, because our listeners love to hear you know, you're toiling in the vineyards and in the cellar, you know, what are you drinking? So the first question is, <clears throat> what are you drinking now? What's outside of um, Chen Blue? What are some of the things, you know, that you drink regularly, seasonally? Give me a couple of examples. So, you know, we're really passionate about Grenache and we've done a lot of work right. in, in that area. In fact, um, you know, any day of the week, I'd prefer a less expensive Grenache to a cheap Pinot or a lot of other grapes that I really okay, enjoy. I but, that. you know, you, you can't go wrong if you're if you're penny pinching. And give me give me a specific example or two you know, that you partake in that people could look for? So I love the work that's being done around here in in the region with Grenache because you get that slightly cooler style Grenache. And so some of my neighbors are doing terrific things like um, uh, Evan Bacher, Claude Trias, or Philippe Gimel at uh, Saint-Jean-du-Barou, uh, Chateau Pesquier, Fondrèche. I mean, the Ventoux has now a collection of superstar winemakers who are really reinventing Grenache uh, to have so that I, kind of cooler I, style. I'm with you. I want, I want people to drink more Grenache. 
I may have to have you email me those guys because I didn't tell you I post all the answers so everyone Perfect. can see them. So we're going to leave that at Grenache. You are a big foodie. I think your mom was a food critic. Your dad had wine around the house, collected it. Um, what is your favorite wine and food pairing? Not what you think is a good one or what you serve, but what do you, what do you like? I love having some of these very weird and wacky whites with okay. with weird and wacky food, right? If you take a wine, for example, like Alio, and there are a bunch of, of old of Rieslings, there are some fantastic uh, old Burgundies. Uh, in our case, you'd think instead of just fish or some of the usual suspects, um, to try them with artichokes or uh, asparagus uh, or impossible to pair. foods that are impossible yeah, to pair. Yeah, that with. is when I get really That's excited cool. is when I pair something completely impossible to pair with something totally exciting and suddenly it works and you just, your mind just goes, Pow! I could. I could see why it works. Um, all right, third question. Um, give me one or two. Do you have a favorite wine restaurant and or bar? Do you have places through your travels or locally that have a cool wine list, a great vibe, you know, people that are knowledgeable? Does anything come to mind? I spend my life in places like that. I look for them uh, for work and for pleasure. But uh, one that jumps to mind right this minute is the uh, Sierra del Mar restaurant at the Post Ranch Inn. Um, you may have uh, been there up in Big Sur at the top of the cliffs. Yeah. And the, I th Pretty remarkable. It's, a, it's a remarkable place, remarkable people. But I love the way that they have not just built this uh, you know, award-winning wine list, but we all know when you're enjoying fine wine and you want to go all out for that experience, every little aspect of the experience matters, not just uh, what's in the bottle, but also, you know, who you're with, how the wines are presented and all of that. You answered the question to what the question is, which is not just the wine, but, you know, the whole vibe. All right. I'm going to take that one. Um, don't get mad at me for rushing. Favorite all-time wine, uh, not the most rare expensive wine you've had, but that wine that had an impact on you, that made you think differently, that you drank with somebody that you'll never forget. What's that wine? It was a Clos Saint-Jacques, and okay. overnight I became cuckoo about Burgundy and never looked back. So when I'm not drinking Rhone, I'm drinking, uh, uh, I'm, I'm drinking uh, Burgundy. Absolutely amazing. I mean, Rousseau is genius, obviously. And for yeah, me, I, I, I couldn't, I, I couldn't get over. I, I just couldn't get over how, what, what it felt like to have that wine. Yeah, you ain't alone in thinking that. All right, last question. Dig deep. Because you make a well thought out, you know, luxury wine. Dig deep and tell me the best wine you could recommend for about 15, 20, 22 bucks American. Recommend a red, recommend a white. You can go category like Muscadet. You can give me makers. Um, what comes to mind? 
well, you know, I'm a Grenache girl. I'm a Grenachista, right? So, uh, but can you get so you, Grenaches 15, 20 bucks that are good? Well, I'm not an expert on the U.S. market, but uh, I love the cooler climate Grenache in Santa Barbara. And uh, right. obviously, our, uh, the people out there like, like Doug, like, um, um, like Doug Marjoram, and uh, yeah. a lot of the people, that, you know, Bob Lindquist, the guys who really brought sure. Grenache to the attention of the American public. Uh, I think they've done an amazing job. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of interesting stuff happening in T Paso Robles because they have so many interesting people out there. It tends to be a bit more expensive, I think. But certainly, yeah. uh, philosophy-wise, oh, you know, Tablas Creek, uh, I love those guys. And we have so much in common in terms of how we think and how we Jason, do things. Uh, yeah, yep. Jason's awesome. Give me, uh, where are you thinking on whites with that? A value white in your mind. Um, ooh, I'm. I love my Rieslings. Uh, I guess it is hard to get okay. a good Riesling Those for that you, price. No, but no, you're wrong. There are very good value-oriented Rieslings, whether they're from Germany or even Austria. Um, I don't know about the U.S., yeah. but certainly German and Austrian Rieslings. Uh, I would say no seller should should be without them. I I agree with you. I think. Weasling is one of those great wines. All right, good job on that. I know you get a little uh, scared when you're crept up on, but you did a good job on that. Um, I want to take about a minute to talk about um, the rosé. I have in front of me a Chen Bleu Le Rosé 2019. We discussed it a little. It's predominantly Grenache, a little Syrah, Hul or however you pronounce it, which is the Vermentino, Zinzo, and Mouvard. Um, just tell me a little about this wine. Yeah, it took forever to figure out how to make that wine. Um, of course, you can't just wake up <laughs> okay. in the morning on rosé and decide you want to make a, a very serious, interesting rosé, right? That's uh... You can, but that's not what you're doing. <laughs> you have to go out right? and you have to get yourself a very expensive um piece of equipment, which is a, a press, you know, a pneumatic press to make a direct press rosé, because you, if, you, if you treat yourself to that machine, it's a, it's a game changer, because you can do a very slow, careful press that allows you the secret ingredient, which is to keep the finer lees, and it's the lees that you're going to ferment at very cold temperatures, we do a five-week fermentation with the lees, which is going to be the secret. You're going to bring out all the texture and flavors from that flotsam and jetsam, from those yeasts, from, from, from the right. pulp. And so then you want to build on that. And our secret, again, which took us a long time because these things were not readily available when we started, is that everybody um, who's making commercial rosé is going to fine it with stuff like PVPP because you can't use the animal fining. They're too heavy. So PVPP, right. you know, is a form of, of petrochemical. It's a form of plastic. Do they take it right. out? Of course. But does it leave that little bitter finish? Absolutely. And so it's not going to kill you, but who, who needs more microplastics in this world? And so the uh, way we figured out to find it with ground organic green pea powder, uh, I think really changes uh. the structure uh, on the aromatic curve because normally a typical rosé has a very short curve with a nice burst of fruit and, and perfume and then it kind of flatlines with very little mid-palate, very 
very little length, and then often you get the little bitter finish at the end. And by changing these important parts of how you make it, you can structurally change that aromatic curve as well. You can keep the pretty fresh fruit, but then you have a lovely full mid palate, some lovely texture, and a long smooth finish with at most a few vegetal notes from using these um, these peas. I've had it in the glass for over a half an hour, and it exhibits all of what you're speaking. It's still strong, the aromatics, the mouthfeel, the mid palate, it's all there. Um, what? Tell me perfect foods to pair with this particular one. And then I want you to tell people why rosé is just not a summer wine. It's, so what do we pair with this? I recommend pairing it with um, not just the usual summer salads, but go deep into sophisticated, complicated pairing. For example, sweet and sour or um, a lot of mixed flavors if you're ever having, for example, Lebanese or Chinese or Thai or anything that requires right. you to... Those spice profile. Yeah, spice and a lot of things going on at once. It's incredibly versatile for that. Um, you can have it by the pool, but it's a waste not to pair this kind of thing. And then you can really dress it up. For example, it was served with the lobster dish for the Queen of England um, at a fancy banquet at Cambridge. Um, so it will actually uh, go with you all the way on the fancy stuff. Sounds good. So that is the 2019 Le Rosé from Chenin Bleu. Um, you can it's it's out there now i just had it it's delicious it's a very classy um rosé and i love it nicole we ran late my engineer matt is going to strangle me when he sees me but i'll deal with that it was worth the time and i'll take the bullet for you um let me do a quick wrap up and i want to um Get a little info from you. So if you have a question, suggestion, or event, hit me up at sam at thegrapenation.com. That's sam at thegrapenation.com. Subscribe to the Grape Nation podcast on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. You can follow us on Facebook at The Grape Nation. On Instagram, we're at sbenruby. And on Twitter, we're at benruby. But you can always use the hashtag The Grape Nation on both. We're trying to build a community on the new Clubhouse app, so follow us there at, at Ben Ruby. As I mentioned, we will post Nicole's wine list answers, and I will post our weekly wine sip, which is the rosé we just tasted and discussed. Nicole, if people want to get more information about uh, Chen Bleu, where is the best place for them to go? I would suspect a website and maybe some social media. Tell me where we can go. All of the above, chenbleu.com, and then you see... C-H-E-N-E-B-L-E-U.com. Exactly, and then on, right. on Instagram uh, and Facebook, all that, Chenbleu Wines. Okay, um, and it's a gorgeous website. I mean, I went through the whole thing, you know, everything about the place, the wines, um, all that stuff. Thank you. All right. I want to thank our guest, Nicole Rollet from Shin Blue. I want to thank our engineer, my very patient engineer, Matt, and everyone at the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to The Grape Nation. The Grape Nation is powered by Simplecast. 
Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. And thanks for listening.